You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast is back with 30 more songs than 120 songs total. I am your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more shrewd musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests, all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 Saws that Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line wearing a Jimenez for President t-shirt. It's Andy Greenwald. It's not settled. It's not settled. <laughs> it's, not, it's in the courts, baby. What's up, man? Hey, so uh, I just want to say what an amazing job you and Kaya did on the finale recap. I was so sad not to be a part of it as I... Uh, Anthony Trollope my way across the continent. Um, I got to say, though, I did try to call in. It's you know, true. I, 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 I was on the streets of Paris. I had been activated to kill Jason Bourne. I was really uh, looking was. forward to, to bringing that spice level to the podcast. But technology, we, we did not get the new Lucas Matson update. So I it wasn't was incredible. To, there was a moment when you appeared Paul Greengrass style. Uh, <laughs> Moments away from launching into either parkour or a brilliant analysis of the finale, but we lost you. <laughs> Who we knows which you. one? I'm sure at some point I will share my thoughts on the finale, but today is not that day because we have Jesse Armstrong on the podcast. Um, he was incredibly gracious to give us about an hour of his time to talk about what succession meant to him and also to break down a couple of very important moments from the finale. Andy, any other any other useful context people might want for for this conversation? No, I, I think a couple things. This comes up in the in the interview, but just you know, people should be reminded that that Jesse also is a proud member of the Writers Guild. He is on strike, but the Guild guidance has shifted a little bit. Um, you know, we had Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage on last week as well. The guidance now is that people, and I agree with this, should be free to promote their work, especially I mean, completed work work that was completed before the strike. Um, the ask is just not to engage the the machinery of the state to do so, meaning like studio publicists or network publicists. So this, like our interview with Josh and Stephanie, we were very lucky to have it come directly from Jesse, from emailing with Jesse, who's been on with us, I think, after every finale uh, of the show. So that was thrilling. And you know, just as a point of order, do yeah. I does that mean that I get to start promoting my Calispatron spec scripts, or is that still kind of like under under wraps? That, that's a the spec script aspect. I think that you might be stepping on your future success. You know, but is oh, yours right. an origin story? <laughs> Dawn, Dawn of Dawn how, of the Sleeper. Yeah. How did he get into that cave? Um, <laughs> like, built the silo, man. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like yeah. 127 hours meets Bumblebee. This is yeah. good stuff. We missed you on this podcast, Chris. I, you I have a really you. good, really good energy. No, it's just it's awesome to talk to Jesse. I think that his perspective at this moment was was also fascinating because he finished work on this, you know, uh, months ago. But he sort of had a couple of days now to sort of, to marinate in the positive reaction, which, at least judging from his body language, has created a feeling of some relief. I think <laughs> he seemed very calm. And, um, no, it's a pleasure to talk to him because, you know, one of the reasons that the show is so deep and so good is because not only are he and his other writers so good, but they think very deeply about all of it. Yeah, uh, we won't, uh, without any further ado, let's get into our conversation with Succession creator Jesse Armstrong. We were produced, as always, by upstart co-host of The Watch, Kaya McMullen. And we will be back on Monday where I will be recording from Philadelphia and then Thursday reunited with my my team back in Los Angeles. Do you look at Kaya now the way that Shiv looks at Tom? <laughs> like is that's that... a complicated that's a complicated question. Great point. There's a lot of <laughs> lot of shifting things in that. I guess I just mean like, you know, yeah. you, you didn't see it coming. 
You didn't see it. I didn't. Uh, No, you guys did such a, uh, it's a a wonderful conversation. People can also listen to Bill and Sean on the Prestige TV podcast. I know we've got some more kind of succession content coming from both the watch and from Prestige TV podcast. Andy and I, maybe we'll, we'll chat a little bit more about succession when we're in the same uh, continental United States, huh? Yeah, let's do it. But for now, let's just talk to the creator of the show about it. I feel like that's a much better look. So thank you again to Jesse for joining us and let's get into it. Andy and I are so thrilled, honored really, to be joined by Jesse Armstrong, the creator of Succession. He's been on the show multiple times, and now he's not. He's on probably for the last time talking about Succession. We hope not the last time ever. Jesse, congratulations on completing the season. I wanted to ask you to start the final images of the of the siblings that we see on the show. At Kendall staring into oblivion into the river, Roman enjoying a martini at the bar, Shiv possibly in a loveless future made up for business reasons, a decision made for business reasons. What describes you best right now? <laughs> what of those three? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think I'm closest to having a martini. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in the, yeah, I'm in a good place. <laughs> That's good. Have you spent the last few days? What is your process? Do you go dark on media or have you been uh, injecting the content into your veins, hearing what people thought about this finale? Uh, well, I've, in the past, I've um, tended to keep pretty clear of the stuff, just for sort of professional reasons of of wanting to not have it too much in my head to be to be talking many to my writers' room and not to the to the culture as a whole. But I'm, you know, I guess I'm one of the people in the world who's most interested in succession. So I'm going to, you know, I'm starting to read pieces and and look at stuff. There's no, it's a, you know, you can sometimes feel a bit filthy in a sort of rolling in your own shit way of like what what's you know it, it can be it, there's something uncomfortable about it but there's also something when you hear interesting stuff read interesting stuff that's like yeah this is great people have been thinking about the show and we've been thinking about it and it feels some of it feels really nice and and so so I, yeah i'm going to start looking at more stuff i think Great. Well, we'll collate. We have a few blog posts. I know The Ringer has done one or two. So we'll, we'll send you a package to, to review. So we do have a bunch of questions, obviously, about um, the specifics of the finale. But I did want to take a more general uh, tack at the beginning and ask you more broadly about when you knew it was time to bring the show to an end. There's been some reporting about this. We, I think uh, Kieran did an interview where he said that he felt like you were hedging even at the final table read saying, well, if there was a season five, this this would have been it. Could you talk us through your own internal process? Did, is this something that you've known for a while, but you sort of felt loath to commit? Or was there a single scene or episode uh, in, the, in the writing this season where you knew we've reached the point where it's time to end? Yeah, I mean, it was really tough. I really love the show. I love the way that it lets me write and lets my fellow writers write and lets us collaborate. So it was a really tough decision. I was checking my sort of notebooks and my my stuff, and it was actually... I started playing with season shapes when we were like in the edit of season three. So a long time ago and, and like looking at what two final seasons would look like and looking what one final season would look like. And even then, you know, two or three years back, it was the, the, the shape of it that went uh, a couple of episodes, one where Logan is at the helm kind of, and then he passes away and then a bunch of episodes that um, were more or less clear and then an election and then an ending where the, the the company passes from family ownership. That was, that's been it for a, for a long time, long, long time. I guess what I tried to keep open was one thing, which is to, I like to go into the writer's room with a proposition, but not, it would be kind of a load of bullshit if I went in there and said, this is it. What would the writing room be for? So, um, and it's not that nothing ever changes in there. Lots changes in there. But I like, so I like to test the proposition. So, so it was a proposition rather than a decision. And for a number of reasons, it, it felt right to not close the process off with my other group of collaborators who are the actors and directors um, so when we, when we, I think I, I tried to signal, I don't know how successfully that I thought this was the end from the, from the beginning of the, the you know, the, from the first time we gathered and obviously, uh, you know, that everyone knew that Logan died 
from pretty early. So I think that was another, you know, pretty significant signal that we were <laughs> getting near the end. So I tried to keep it open because I wanted to keep it open because I think it felt important. It just felt honest that I didn't hadn't totally, totally decided if someone had managed to come up with some brilliant way that it carried on. I was kind of up for that. Uh, and maybe that's um, not completely useful to all my collaborators, but it was the truth. And so I knew and I tried to communicate that, but I it felt honest to also say mm, it's not over till it's over. Is that a useful answer? It, it is. It, it, did someone come the closest to changing your mind? <laughs> I remember when we were leaving the uh, writing room on the last day, we were closing up and we had the season, you know, broken. Uh, lots of changes once we once we start shooting. But I remember Will Tracy kind of going, huh, those, after those first two episodes, it, could, it kind of could have been the kids versus Logan, um, you know, the kids running uh, Pierce, they, if they successfully bought it and Logan running ATN. That would have been a kind of a cool season. And, and I, as we were just, the door was kind of clicking and I did have a kind of like... <laughs> Ah, yeah, we we've done a good four months. Maybe we should start again. Um, so that you know, the, I think hopefully, if it's a decent show, it has multiple different potential ways we could have written it. I don't wake up in the night and think, "Oh fuck, we should have done we should have done a whole season of the kids against against Logan." But it, yeah, you know, it could have been could have been fun. I do wonder though. Um if this crossed your mind or if this is the sort of thing that is easier to do in hindsight or for critics to do, but I, I thought one of the things that felt boldest about the season was the clear evidence that you could have kept going, that, um, you know, there were more permutations, there were more versions of, of conflict between the characters that you've so brilliantly created. But ultimately the fact that you could keep going was a bug, not a feature, which I mean, by, by that, I mean that like being trapped on this sort of unfulfilling hamster wheel is the character's fate. And I feel like it would kind of diminish the impact of that if you chose a similar path on the creative side. Yeah, I wouldn't like us to be like a marathon runner crossing the crossing the finish line and collapsing. That would not be a cool way for us to <laughs> to end the show with every narrative possibility squeezed from the toothpaste tube of possibility. We yeah, so uh, it, it was built in that you know, like when a death happens, there's a there's there's a future that where that death didn't happen, um, you know, for maybe days or hours or years. And so it was it was important to me and us that there was a that there was a real feeling of a narrative direction that then is interrupted by this, you know, he, he's in his mid eighties. So it's not such a surprising event, but deaths are still surprising when they come. So we wanted that, that interruption was, was very necessary from a, from what we want to do creatively with that death. You know, Jeremy did an interview with Vanity Fair where he was talking a bit, I think he described it, your worldview as one where you don't think people change fundamentally and that they, especially these characters, are sort of stuck in this cycle. And I was curious, sort of piggybacking, piggybacking on what Andy said, whether that cycle and whether that inability to change is another reason why the show needed to end. Because if you're not going to send Kendall out into the world of, of you know, philanthropy or if you're not going to you know sort of evolve these characters because of your sort of fundamental belief about who they are does it wind up not limiting the way you write the show but affecting the way you write the show it's a good good point I'd say a couple of things. First of all, I, I do think change is possible. I don't think people are immutably That's who they are. That's a relief for me to hear. <laughs> no, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> we can change. People do change. Um, I think it happens slowly. It happens incrementally, usually. Um, and it happens with difficulty. And it also um, happens that sometimes you don't uh, develop opening up like a flower, but sometimes you wither like a weed that's been hit with some pesticide, right? People don't just get better. Sometimes they get worse. And, you know, the, the, the narrative structures we're mostly comfortable with is growth and burgeoning opportunities. And I, those can happen. It's, and I, and I, I'm not like reductive. I don't, I don't have anything against a story about somebody who gets, becomes other and gets better but we don't see it that much in life and especially in this sphere that we that we find ourselves in with these people who are so trapped psychologically um orbiting this name this power this influence this 
psychologically unattainable man who they both know is so damaging to them, but something inside them impels them to get try and get closer to him again and again. So, uh, yeah, we. So I do think change is possible. It's not evident much in these characters, but the circumstances around them change a lot. Uh, and so I think there is is change. And and you know, I think sometimes people kid themselves a little bit about how much change they want. You know, it's if Michael Corleone starts working inside the mafia, that's is that a change? It's always latent in him. If he ran off and joined the circus, then that would be, I think we said this before, that he that would be that would be a real change. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it would be maybe it'd be an interesting movie. We might have found a good project, but the, the scope of change is small uh, on a personal level. Uh, I think the, the washing machine of repetition that I was very eager not to get stuck in is actually the business one because the moves that we could play on, you know, there's the psychological track and there's the business financial media track. And in a way, I think I could keep on thinking about interesting psychological ways for these characters to interact if not change but be put into new circumstances to see different facets of them i think at a certain point it's about a media empire and what happens to it on a on a gross level but that gross framework is really important to the motor of the show and i didn't want to overplay those beats until you were starting to wonder you know um whether kerry's brother would take over the company right I mean, that was the incredible thing about the finale for me was just that I felt like there are some series finales that you feel like end, like the show has come to its conclusion. You found out what happened to the people on Lost or, you, you know, you see Don at the, the sort of new age re- retreat. But I felt like with Succession, it was like we were being dropped off at the station as viewers. And that it's entirely possible that Kendall calls Shiv 30 minutes after the show ends. Maybe not. You know, I mean, like, but you you leave it up to the viewers to sort of imagine where Roman goes after his martini, where Shiv and Tom go after that night, and it's it's got this kind of ellipsis rather than a hard a hard stop, which is not so much a question as much as it's just. I really appreciated the way it ended. Good. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it feels it feels more full stoppy to me than, than that. I think it's just what what the limit of my almost comprehension or interest or maybe i think the honest truth is it may be the the limit of the world's interest in those characters like once that company is gone once you're you know a disney but disney doesn't own disney you become a kind of curio in in the you know in the the elevated social world that these characters move in uh, rather than a a powerful figure and and so maybe there is something reductive but it's kind of like the world in the in the harshest version of that kind of done with them like they've got their billions but they're not actors anymore i thought that was actually one of the most powerful thoughts or emotions in that finale is that everything dropped away and we saw what they were and we saw who we were watching the whole time the 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 circus not the corleone brother circus which has been very successful for many years but one of the lesser circuses has left town and what i was struck by at the end was this sort of sense that oh, maybe we had been watching the wrong program for four years, that uh, in the end, these were never, I mean, Logan was right. They, these were not serious people. We were watching a show about broken children. And the business of Waystar, of the future of it, was always happening in rooms we weren't in. You know, I, I, I remember talking, and maybe this came up in our last interview, that through large portions of season three, it felt like Logan's story, where he was actually doing the work to keep the company alive, was off screen along with his relationship with Carrie, along with the things that seemed to matter in the larger shareholder view of Waystar Royco. And just, we were with these kids fighting over the broken Legos. And this finale disabused us of the idea that we were ever watching Titans of Industry. You know, this is that, that in many ways, once the, the, the framework went away, the psychological story, as you put it, was what you were telling and it came to a close. Yeah, I think that's, a, I think that's true. I, I, I think um, it was important for me to live in this certain duality that I th- I knew what I thought would happen in the final episode and it and, and it did. Um, but I, I guess the only caveat I would have is that I don't think any of them would probably have been good at running the company, but 
it wouldn't be impossible like things that 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 could happen i think it would be not good but i'm not sure that anyone can say this legacy media company i personally really wanted to see what roman did to cinema honestly i mean it was it was all out in front of us there calispatron had a lot of meat on the bone I think this this whole strike with Roland would have been resolved by now due to his you know sensitivity towards the creative spirit and mind. I wouldn't um, like to see him in the negotiating room. I think, yeah, or on the picket lines. He doesn't do well in large protests. Um, I I wonder, Jesse, that your your perspective on the way that this finale was greeted and the build up to it, because one thing that I found surprising, I, well, not surprising, but I, I rubbed me the wrong way as a fan of the show, I think, was this sort of narrative that there were winners and losers. That who is going to win? Who's going to win this show? And it struck me as that, and I wondered, uh, not to put words in your mouth, if this struck you as a very American sensibility, that we should be rooting for these titans of industry, or that someone could come out on top, and that this is not a poison chalice that they're struggling to inherit at the end of the day? Hmm. No, I think it would be a bit disingenuous to like write a show called Succession and have everyone wondering uh, and talking about constantly who would take over and then to profess like, oh, you shouldn't be interested in that. <laughs> That's um, fair. I, <laughs> I, I, I think you're right on a deeper level. If you were solely watching the show for that element, I think you'd find it not a very satisfying watch. It'd basically be a load of insults and uh, who's going to win. And maybe maybe it's enjoyable on that level. Uh, I, 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 yeah, similarly, I have a twin track on that. Like, I was interested in that. It was, it had to feel right, and Tom felt right and intriguing and and true um, to 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 the world. But you're right in that that isn't the ending. That I think if you think of what the ending of this show was, it wasn't like oh, Tom was the best and Tom won. It was something more complicated than that. But but I wouldn't dismiss that element of it. I, and I was you know interested to hear what people thought and. Um, I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't disdain anyone for their for their theories about who who, who was going to win because I I can't help thinking about it like that about shows. I just love the idea of you um, with your writers in London, kind of tro- having Trojan horsed yourself successfully into this country's uh, psyche, <laughs> and wondering just what your perspective on on that um, on that was, especially during the writing of this last season. I found it very interesting that the person who quote unquote does win is the most American. He's dismissed as being provincial just, you know, two episodes earlier. He describes his job as a pain sponge who's just going to be up all night worrying, which kind of, that that's an American work ethic for good or ill. Um, I, I, I wondered what, what, what the, that was like for you guys to be an ocean away and to be, you know, right in the corporate boardroom of this kind of fucked up country. Yeah, well, there's a lot of Americans on the show, cast and writers, and so we're hopefully we're at least Anglo-American as in our perspective. It's a, it's a special uh, relationship. Right? It's true. <laughs> it, that's very kind of you to say, uh, and we'll all be very pleased over here. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to be too disdainful. I'm not disdainful. I did American studies. I'm a sort of. Uh, I'm rather. I l- like America a lot. I like people, and I like being there. I like New York City. I like a lot of about America and. You know, if I had to sum up my feelings, I would probably be along the lines of Kendall when he's sort of incredibly gauche and says all the different people living together. It's a nice idea. I think it's a nice (laughs) idea. And it's still, I find, you know, a very persuasive idea and a nice way of being a nation. However, yeah, I think... I was away, you know, I used to come to America for six months at a time to make the show as hard as away from my family as dislocating. And I think uh, I find this even more when I'm in LA, I get a slightly pleasant sense of disassociation, that kind of, you know, we all know it, the feeling of coming home from away and noticing everything afresh and you, and you know, you do it when you go into a different culture or a different city and everything seems very vivid. And the, and the stuff which the people who live there have, have stopped noticing is very obvious to you. And that's, you know, whatever we think satire is um, one of the things it is, is taking a rather cold look at what you're looking at, right? That's, that's one of the things you do. You 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 try to strip away a little bit, and um, that's why it can be uncomfortable um, for the subject. So yeah, I think being not from there, being from a already dissolved empire, uh, uh, watching one which is 
who knows it might be it might be we might be a long way from from that moment or sometimes it feels you're right in the middle of it so so yeah that's a it's been a, a it's certainly been a perspective that, that, that lots of the writers have shared um, as we've worked. We, uh, you know, I was reading a piece that went up on the Guardian that you uh, that you wrote about the sort of influences on Succession, the sort of origin story of doing the show and and bringing it to Los Angeles and and meeting Adam and working on it. And I was struck by just how many. You know, obviously, real life figures you were drawing on. I think you you mentioned um, the Murdochs, obviously uh, Robert Maxwell, the, the the Redstones, and you take that and you combine it with the thing that leaps out at me and that always grabs me by the brain. I guess is is the sort of shades of this, as many people point out, like the Shakespearean elements of the show. And 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 Jeremy has spoken about the the Richard the Third elements and and. You know, I, I saw somebody compare the the Roman Kendall hug to something that happens in Wolf Hall, and there's all these great moments. I, I wonder what of you was in Succession, you know, like almost on a, a an autobiographical level. But you know, sometimes when I'm watching it, there's things that happen on the show. Andy and I talked about it, especially when it came to Logan's death, where it's like this happened to somebody in that writers' room, you know, or or there's there's things that happen in this show that aren't in a biography and they're not in Henry the eighth. They're, they're, they're real, you know? Well, Henry the eighth never flew, I believe in an airplane. <laughs> so that true. definitely wasn't Good there. Point. Eliminate that. <laughs> One thing on his bucket list he didn't get to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the way the, I've occasionally thought about this, people um, have brought up that I'm pretty seem different from the characters in the show and stuff. I think there's a way in which it's anti-biography and that I grew up not, in London and not near power, not near money. And, and I'm, I'm personally, I like cordial relations and I like warm familial relations in family and in work. And so in a way you you could say it's like a anti-biography. These are, these are all the things which I find fascinating and which are not a part of my life. I've, I, I worked in politics and I've now been around media and, I've seen money and so on. And um, so, so I feel like I've got a feel for some of that stuff, but, you know, maybe it's um, slightly the witchcraft are trying to keep it away in the, that I find it fascinating to see people who can be brutal. Um, I, you know, value probably truth and trying to tell the truth very highly. And these are people for whom it's a, a, a contingent tactic so that's the way I think about that. Um, I think a little bit, but also the writers' room is a generous, I hope, sort of um, you know, rather warm and woozy and cuddly place. Where at some points where we do talk about difficult things that have happened to ourselves and my fellow writers share, and I try and share, and so a lot of stuff gets put into the um, into the communal pool for us to to draw on for those affecting moments. I, I want to talk about some of those affecting moments, as you put it, because I think that you and your writers are rightfully lauded for the cleverness and the insults and the swearing. Um, but one of the things that dazzled me uh, episode after episode was the almost relentless mining of the emotional possibilities within pre-existing relationships that there always felt like there was more meat on the bone, so to speak. Um, and you could keep going back to it. So I wondered if we could talk specifically about uh, Shiv and Tom, which is just seemed like, you know, a, a, a non-Daniel Plainview types might think that, that that well was dry. But no, <laughs> it, kept, it kept producing season after season. You know, we may have talked about this two years ago, but when they're sitting on that beach and Tom says, you know, maybe I would just be a little less sad. I was like, well, that's, that's, that's done. That's the most perfect conversation these two can ever have. And then season after season, you would have more to say. And then this season, there was no floor, you know, in terms of how how low they could go with each other. So specifically thinking of those characters and the opportunities that came up in, in the room, how did you approach finding new avenues and new places for it to go and still have them be true? Well, I guess like a lot of the season, it was useful to know that this was the end. And so I've always encouraged us to to like use our ammunition now and worry about the new supplies tomorrow you know because you never know if you're gonna you're gonna um get to 
I don't want to carry on my analogy now. I've ended up in, in, a, in, a, in a foxhole, but you, you, you know, spend it while you got it because you never know. It might not be the right, right, the right moment um, the next time. Um, but knowing that it was the end, um, I, 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 yeah, I get. I guess there were. It was. It was rather distinct to me. There was. There was a period where they hadn't talked about what happened in Italy, and that felt very real, big to me because. When we talked about it in the room, it felt like, yeah, you know what? This is, it's so, you know, it's so disempowering that night to Shiv. What does she do? She she doesn't tell Tom right away that she knows what's happened. And it felt incredibly credible to me that she, she wouldn't because it was, it put her back there. So there's that period when she, they hadn't talked about it. There was some, you know, as as Tom progresses, there was that moment we got where we, where where he felt sufficiently emboldened to talk about the truth of why he um, was with Shiv, um, which was is complicated and multi layered, but but he 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 said the hard things as well as the easy things, uh, and then we always knew that we wanted it for them to say the to have that row that you think is going to be the one from which you can never come back. And so we always knew that was going to be laid in. And then for me, um, they end in a, in a place of a certain rather terrifying, cool equality. And so I do believe what you say in that if, if somebody had to go and write a play about Tom and Shiv from the writing room or me, I think we could carry on, but we did, I think we went to the places that were most interesting in this season in in, in the relationship um, in that in that kind of structure. It's very interesting, though, what you just said that to, in your mind that final shot is one of equality that that they've that they've ended in the same place as equals for the first time. Is that a correct read of what of what you were saying? Yeah, for me, they are. There's an emotional equality that they've never shared because Tom has always been subordinate or he's been in that role in a relationship where there's something essentially where he's trying to please her or get her validation and that because of the material change between them has has altered and yet she retains that queenly name and that um uh you know plutocrats money uh and whereas he's a, you know, he'll probably get a share option soon, but he's still something of a salary man. And uh, and so there's a haughty respect on both sides, I would say, for me, for me. And, you know, I, I, used, I used to be really reticent about putting a name on the quality, on the, on the, on the, on the nature of these scenes and stuff. I, I used to feel it was um, uh, transgressing on the kind of the right of the viewer to make their own assessment, but now it's all done. I feel like, you know, while people make their own assessments, it's probably a bit self-regarding to think they're going to change them because I've said what I think uh, well, the I mean, situation but, is. But I, I love I love hearing that because there's such a formality to the way in which they hold hands in the back of the car and it looks like a, they're in a throne room. And when you think about so many royal unions, they're about political uh, expediency or like accumulation of political power. And so... It does make sense that, you know, I think that you could watch that and you could say, oh, Shiv has sort of bent the knee and now is kind of subservient to Tom. But I think that there is, you're, you're right, that there's a balance there. She says something to him earlier in the episode about, you know, once you've said the worst things to someone, that you're free, that it frees you up a little bit. And I think that her kind of proclamation there gets obviously stress tested in the conference room when she's there with with Roman and Kendall and even in this series where so many things have been said and so many things have been done, it felt like Shiv reminding Kendall, who I, I suppose needed reminding that he is a murderer and that Roman going that extra foot and saying, you know, if, if you want to talk about bloodline, it should be Shiv. Those two felt like lines or thing ideas that you had been hanging on to and like, this will be in the final showdown. Is that, is that, true or because those feel like things that's very difficult to come back from yeah I, I got caught up thinking about what you were saying first I, I, the only thing i would add to the tom and shiv thing is i don't think it's like it's not like good equality it's like oh yeah, yeah. it's like 
1984 USSR USA <laughs> equality, right? It's 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 mutually assured destruction. Like we're gonna, we're, there's a bit in the that I think Matthew has talked about in the stage directions about them being like bombs in transit, and and I don't think it's like equality they can build on. It's that that you know you sometimes see in a political or showbiz marriage a rather frozen, terrifying it's a, st- a stalemate. It's a so you're saying more exactly. of like a Sylvester Stallone, Dolph Lundgren kind of union, you know, at the end of Rocky. <laughs> That's it. That's yeah. it. Did they end up holding hands? I don't remember the movie that well. It's the director's <laughs> cut. I'll show it to you later. Yeah, yeah. But um, but your second part of your question was about what they say in the in that in um, the conference room. Yeah, because I would imagine the, you'd have to there. There has to be. And you mentioned two bits. These, you meant which bits? Did you mention? It was Shiv saying, reminding Kendall that he. That, that he killed someone and yes. Roman then making the comment about the sort of validity of the bloodline going through, yes. which is such a classical statement to make, but is yes. that Shiv has sort of more right to the throne because she'll have this natural child. Yeah. The first one was the one that was laid in that we kind of knew um, that if it was raised and Kendall you know, from expediency, tried to brush it away in a what turns out to be rather a foolish way. Some glue that that stuck them together um, would come undone forever, and that 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 would be the the thing which means he, he you know that the argument is over at that point. They're not interested in listening to him because he's betrayed this thing that they seem to share that was quite deep. The bloodline I didn't know was going to come up, I think, even maybe until I was writing it and then it suddenly kind of, it's one of those things that reared up. My fellow writers may came to mind me and say that was not wrong, but I don't think that was on our on our little card for that for that scene, but it was like, oh yeah, that's in there. And, you know, there's been various times where Logan's, his generation's rather brutal, reductive way of looking at things and maybe, you know, more than his generation, that kind of uh, regal, you know, horrible checking of virginity and bloodlines and bastard sons and and that stuff um, suddenly asserts itself in a, in a in a in a horrible way. One of the things that that Chris and I have loved so much about watching the show and, and talking about the show week to week is that it we've had this much time to do it, that this has been a ongoing, as we've learned, all shows are actually limited series, but at least we had multiple seasons um, to watch these characters grow and develop and watch you and your creative team grow and develop in tandem. If we were talking to an actor, I would imagine that an actor would say to sign up for a multi-year project like this involves a, a degree of trust that the stewards of the ship will be guiding them in the right direction. Um, sorry, stewards of the yacht in this particular <laughs> case. Um, I'm curious about it from your perspective about the relationships with the actors. And specifically, I wanted to to bring up Kieran, who I thought I thought his performance this year was really astonishing. And I imagine that years ago when you cast him in the pilot and he's playing this character who's very much surface and, you know, and, and the bad boy and behaving in the way that he is, that there must have been discussions between the two of you about what that was hiding, about what was beneath the surface in the iceberg. And things have come out over the years and we learned about his character history and we've seen his behaviors in various pairings. I wondered about the the trust involved in this year where he would become, basically install a fascist president in America and then fall all the way down to the bottom, you know, and with, with, with what happened at the funeral, with what happened in the street, and then where he ended up in the finale. Um, yeah, to, specifically about that journey with Kieran and that character. Yeah, it's a good question. And um yeah, it's been wonderful to work with these actors over the years and um, discover what they can do. And just, I've never hesitated for a moment writing a script thinking, will X person be able to get to this place? Um, and sometimes with lots of words and sometimes with rather few words. And and uh, so that's an incredible luxury as a writer to just know that you're dealing with a partner in in a uh, in an actor and all these actors who can literally go anywhere there are no there are no limits on what what they can do in terms of verbal dexterity but also emotional capacity um and specifically uh, with Kieran yeah we with Brian obviously uh, and with um Matthew and Jeremy Kieran and Sarah I think I sketched through 
out what what I thought would happen to their characters in the season early on. I had a chat with each of them. And so they have that kind of rope to feel for as we as we go through the season that season and and it it it's that that pitch is not um immutable it that that changes in usually in smaller ways the the shape of all their seasons i think remain the same but kieran was kieran was happy i think he said in interviews he he was you know one of the people who had maybe more doubts about signing up to a a TV show where he didn't know where he was going and he had certain anxieties as anyone would, I think about like, what the hell am I going to be doing for all these years potentially? And he also had anxieties about the improvisation and, you know, he's, and he took to that unbelievably well. And also the, the thing which he is able to do, which is to load up a bunch of our alternative lines and, edit them and spit them out uh, either on one take or multiple takes. Um, So, yeah, he was aware of where he was going. And I think he, I think he, yeah, he, he, he liked it. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. One of the things that Andy obviously mentioned there was his role in the uh, the presidential election, which yes. uh, is an episode that I think is going to stay with people, especially in America, for quite some time. Uh, you've talked about this show and its relationship to Trump and and being written in the aftermath of 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 Trump's election and kind of coming to power. Mencken, to me, though, felt like more of a prophecy than a reflection. Um, I. We don't really have someone specifically like him. Can't wait, but we don't just yet. Um, <laughs> Fingers you know, crossed. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's certain people that he reminds me of, but nobody quite like him. Can you tell me a little bit about where he comes from for you and, and how much of that is Justin Kirk specifically and how much of it is, what was the inspiration, I guess, if that's the right word for, for such a, a demon? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. I think he is... You know, uh, a bunch of it is interacting with Justin's persona and his, you know, the writing towards him and and then him also bending the words towards what he does well. It, 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 it's not a prophecy, I don't think. It's a... We always have... There's always an issue for this show, right, which we are close to reality, but if we touch it, we might get electrocuted <laughs> because we can't get... If we if it got too close to reality, the 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 audience's sense of the show would start to ask questions, which would not help them be you know have willing suspension of disbelief. So we have to be really careful with that gap. Um, but if we get too far away, for me, it lose, I lose interest. It gets it, it's no longer has that relationship with the world, which which I think is for me what gives it um, interest and power. And so when you have these political figures, I think the really what we wanted was something that felt possible, was coherent. I guess he's he's um he's got maybe low tax instincts, but but with that vocabulary of 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 more social provision that we're seeing uh quite a lot on that particular part of the Republican Party, Trumpy. And then he and then he turns up the um ethnic nationalism to you know to the dog whistle is really screaming um uh so i guess that's that's the that's the ballpark and yeah we we talked about a bunch of of political figures who could be in that territory i i hope he's what do i hope he is i hope he's believable but i hope he's not elected right <laughs> and yeah the only, the only other thing to say about that is i felt especially as a british person um writing into this culture and trying to take it seriously that it was that it was important that we did not, for me, it was important that we didn't say who won. You know, it's still in the courts as it would be in such a situation. 
And I, I would have felt uncomfortable saying that either he won or he didn't. It just, it just felt, it felt wrong to me and, and somewhat, I guess, disrespectful to the, the gravity of the real moment, which is, it's sort of like climate change, right? You can forget how real the possibility of some people who don't believe in a peaceful transfer of power how close they are to winning in a national election in the US. It's like you keep on having to, you know, I do keep on having to slap my head and think this is that this could happen. And um, it, I guess it's it's so real and scary if it were to happen. I, I wanted to take uh, take us out of that arena in terms of our fiction. Just some patriots taking a stroll in Washington, D.C. on a winter day. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I, I wanted to, to to just steer us to two specific scenes in the finale, if we could, um, that, that will linger for a while and also really speak to something that was really brought home by the finale writ large, which was just that the, these three siblings really only make sense together and their level of, you know, the familiarity of their mutual abuse is probably the only constant that makes them feel safe in a, ter- in a terrible way. The first moment was when they are doing the, uh, the, the, they didn't get the medals, but they were going through the house with the stickers. And suddenly, you know, they stumble upon this video of a dinner where they see a, a vision of their father that makes them quite emotional. Um, and they feel very fondly to him. And I'm not sure if it's playing on their faces that this is very much an event they weren't invited to and a side of him that they weren't able to see. I, I wondered if you could talk us through that that process of giving us another glimpse of Logan, but also that specific glimpse with that group of people behaving in that way. Yeah, it it was an instinct that, 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 that such a thing might, might potentially be playing uh, an event like that where you're distributing or, you know, seeking to distribute the, um, the effects of a deceased person. And honestly, I thought it might be a bit saccharine, a bit lachrymose. And I thought, well, we'll have it playing in the background and we'll kind of see what happens. Once the actors started responding, I remember on the day, I think I was in tears. I think Mark Mylod was as well. We were in tears when they shot it in the fir- in the first place. Um, partly it was, a, it was the rap season, rap or show rap for... Brian and a bunch of other people, but but also it was just very affecting. And then when seeing the kids react to it was even more uh, affecting. So so it suddenly became evident that um, well, I guess it's it's something maybe you know that, that there aren't many moments, there aren't a huge number of moments in the show where those billionaires s- seem like people one knows. But a lot of us have seen tape of loved ones who've gone, and it's a it's a gut punch, and and it's one that I guess we can. It's pretty obvious what they're thinking as they as they watch. the The second scene is is, and I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong about this. I've I've read that this was the last scene that maybe that you filmed, which is the siblings um, with the meal fit for a king, yeah, uh, and and the blender and the uh, and we heard Jeremy actually drank it, which which tracks. Um, <laughs> I guess I just was curious your thoughts now that it's in in the past of the particular dynamic between those three characters and the three actors, you know, because uh, there has been, I think, too much ink spilled and we won't contribute to it about people's varying acting styles and approach to the material. But our takeaway, I think, as we've talked about this season is whatever was happening worked um, because the dynamic between those three individuals was so um, compelling and so surprising and yet so it felt true, which is a strange thing to say about fictional characters, but there it was. And to see them at what could have been their happiest and what they could have been was was really moving. And I, and I guess I wondered about that on a character level and also on a personal level, being in that room with those actors playing those parts together for what may have been the last time. Yeah, it was very emotional. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want to go on about it too much. Everyone has leaves different workspaces and you know, people you won't see again for a while. It's not it's it's not the grandest thing ever but for us it was a big deal um and uh, yeah they they what can i say about them in in that kitchen it was delightful it was a little heady it was still basically the script but it was um it was extraordinarily funny i could watch um kieran lick cheese i think probably for <laughs> 
a whole show's worth and do his Cockney accent. And yeah, it was, what's there, what can I say about it that transmits what it was like? It was, yeah, I think it was, it was a little bit electric, not, not, you know, it was difficult to control and there was a great energy. And I'm very glad that that was our last scene that we shot rather than, um, I mean, it's just happenstance. Uh, maybe Christo and Mark, my lord, um, arranged it to end on that high note. Probably they did, and I wasn't even aware. But but it could have been another way. But it was it was very nice that that in a certain way, for in a in a kind of colleague-y way, that that's where the show ended. Rather, it's a version than, of an but, ending. But, yeah. but, anyway. but it's interesting. I think the way throughout our conversation today, and I think even in past years, you, you you do refer to the electricity or the surprise, and there's some improvisational aspects to the show. And I feel like that's a little bit underrated. Not just in the terms of Kieran can put new fucks into certain formulations and they work and they make it into the show, but that you had this incredible both trust in your cast and production team, but also almost luxury of letting it letting it tell you something on the day. I feel like that's not necessarily uh, the norm, um, particularly for shows that we often, you know, that we laud and celebrate for the, the the crisp writing. And, you know, the fact that these three actors were so comfortable both in these parts that you created for them and in their internal, dyna- their, their dynamic as the three of them, that you could just let it go and see where it took you. I think, I think that's not remarked upon enough. That doesn't, I don't think that's common. No. And um, yeah, thank you. I think it's good. It comes from a bunch of places, you know. I learned a bit uh, with Armando on uh, Thick of It and In the Loop and Veep, and um, we got it also from Adam McKay, who shot the pilot, and you know works like that and infused us from the very first day. Um, we got it from Mark Mylod, who who is able to marshal a lot of different ideas from cast and writers, and my you know all my fellow writers and myself about what we feel, and he you know is like a global brain being able to process it all and and then turn it also into um shootable beautiful scenes so there's all that going on as the backstory and then yeah i mean also it's worth saying there's this strike right on on right now i'm on strike and the whole wga is and we're on we're on set you know there's on that day there's me tony and lucy uh preble tony roach we're, we're on set and yeah we trust the actors implicitly and they can they, they know their characters and they can do what they want. But then there's us three and Mark to talk to them uh, to make sure that it fits with the show and and that, the, you know, if something could be, if they, we could express something a little more cleanly or a little more messily, then we're there to to change it. And, and, um, and sometimes the actors do that on their own and sometimes we're there to help it. And sometimes we're just dead on script. But the fact that the actors know it's okay to go a different way. And sometimes I might say, Oh, I really like that phrasing. Let's hit that. But often I won't is, is a, is, you know, it's a very, it's a very good way to work for me with, and, you know, we've got a couple of cameras, so you can always, you know, well, the editors do a hell of a lot of work to make sure that we then can cut it together because people aren't necessarily always standing in the same place when they uh, do what they don't necessarily do twice in a row. (laughs) I, I do think we should, we will say this in our intro as well, and we probably should have said it earlier that, um, that yes, members of the WGA are on strike right now as, as you are. And, uh, you know, this, this whole interview was done without the mechanisms of the state that you were very kind to <laughs> connect with us via uh, electronic mail. And this is, and this is, there now, are no Carolinas involved in the, in the, no, this was apparently, this is now apparently okay, as I think it should be, because I mean, there are a few testaments to the importance of writers with the stature of succession at this moment. So I'm glad to be able to talk to a writer during this strike. Um, I, we want to, we don't want to take up too much more of your time, Jesse, but I did want to ask, well, he's, this he's is the show's strike. over. I've finished got, his show. Yeah, you're done. <laughs> I know. Yeah, no. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, if there's a podcast out, I'm going to be on there banging on about <laughs> succession till the, no one wants to hear about it anymore. You're going to be doing succession conventions and stuff. It's I, am. Um, I wanted to know what the end of this show means for you. In terms of what you consume and what you're interested in about the world and whether or not now that you're done with the world of mergers and acquisitions and captains of industry and, uh, you know, heirs to thrones, et cetera, do you, do you get really into the Premier League again? Do you, do you, can you like, can you, can you kind of wash this off of you or are these things that you think will interest you, consume you, fascinate you in your professional and personal life going forward? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you should try, you know, there's nothing like writing a script to make you check out the transfers for your um, favourite <laughs> soccer team. Uh, so, yeah, no, that that's kept pretty strong throughout. Yeah, oh, yeah, there's a certain sort of shedding of skin of like, I won't necessarily read that whole piece about um, Shari Redstone or, you know, Comcast that's coming out, but probably... I'm, you know, I probably will because I'm still interested in that world. The bit that, that is a, almost like um, there's something slightly hallucinatory about it. I'd encourage everyone to start reading the business pages a bit more closely because once you've had your eyes opened to um, sound vaguely conspiracy theory, but it's like once you start looking at the ways that financial deals um, order the world. You can't stop looking at it, and you know I've been at I've been at HBO while AT and T bought it for like mid eighties billion dollars, and then and then it's sold to Discovery for mid forties billion dollars, and it's not like quite like forty billion dollars disappeared because I you know um, AT and T shareholders hold some of that stock, but it's also not. Com- completely not like $40 billion uh, <laughs> disappeared. And, and you know, people I know, people I've worked with lose their jobs and they, they it's a bit like, um, you know, one one salary is a tragedy, a thousand is a statistic. You, 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 see, you see these extraordinary sums of money appear and disappear. And it's not like, you know, when you're stoned and 18 and you think none of this is real, uh, they could just um, uh, put different zeros on the end and we could all be living in luxury. But the it, it's very hard to comprehend how those decisions impact people's lives. And it's difficult to look away once you you you, you start looking at the at, at the, the movements of business which um, affect our lives. Uh, to be fair, $40 billion disappeared, but I think 11 other creators of Succession appeared in one of these transitions, <laughs> right? So there is a trade-off. Um, I, I, I also, I, I feel like I should apologize. I feel like I've been trying to lock you into this role of being a British observer of all of this, which is not, it's, it's far too limiting. But I do think that one of the most American things, one of the things that Americans are not good at is leaving well enough alone. So I do feel like the decision to say, I've told my story and, uh, I'll have other opportunities and other stories to tell. I don't know if it's particularly British, but it feels foreign and it feels uh, quite exciting, honestly. And I wonder if that is, indem- is that specific to you, do you think? And because you have a restless creative mind and you're ready to do something else, or is it partly connected to the fact that your career already has had so many twists and turns and, and time spent with different creative partnerships and relationships and different styles of shows across genres, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, maybe there's something deep in like the the TV or creative culture you grow up in. You know, obviously UK is has not had as much money, and historically we've made these you know single writer six uh, episode runs of of sitcoms and dramas at six or eight. And you know, if you've grown up working on a show which is twenty two, twenty three, or more in a season that must get coded into your sense of what it's like to do a TV show at a certain level. And and if you've, sorry, if you've grown up, you know, thinking of Faulting Towers and, and The Office, just, you know, doing two or three seasons and that being enough, maybe that gets coded in. Uh, I think more, you know, there's a lot of tough decisions to make in this show, cutting pieces of script I love, stories I love, uh, uh, rewriting things which are kind of already working but I think need more which is can be complicated and losing material brilliant actors doing brilliant stuff which doesn't fit into your hour or or the into a compact story shape um so I feel like I've got inured to difficult decisions and and the and I I think I've always honored what is best for this story or what I think is best and 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 that's all I can do. And so once the idea had occurred to me that I thought that this was it, you, you if that's like a little 
brain weevil you can't get rid of because you know you can imagine trying to write another season when you're like oh this is the season we didn't really need to do but it was so fun to hang out and you know we're going to go to these couple of cool locations which is something i've always also not wanted to influence our decisions so so yeah it's uh, i don't know there may be a bunch of reasons why um why we've done maybe fewer than you might have expected but runs are maybe getting a bit shorter overall right also, you you have this robust succession convention circuit to start. Yeah, and exactly. Got to so get into hanging those, out. <laughs> I'm stitching those costumes. The conhead convention. It's got to happen soon. <laughs> like the uh, Ortolan snack bar. I think it's going to be great. We, we could pitch you on this all day, but yeah. uh, we probably shouldn't. <laughs> Jesse, I'm thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for this television program, which Andy and I adored and spent so much time talking about. But I think I speak for Andy when I say the great thing about this show is not just thinking about the show, but all the other things it made me think about, you know, and it's, it's really incredible to have something so stimulating and you should be really proud. Thank you so much. I'm really glad you felt it's worthy of your time. And that's, you know, it's all I wanted really is something that's, that Hulk is worthy of holding your interest. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, that's kind. It was a joy and please take all the time off you need because we're on strike, but then when that's over, please come back. Please give yeah. us something new soon. Enjoy and transfer uh, rumors. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You, Thanks, it's a Jesse. pleasure chatting with you. Cheers. Cheers.